Eskimen podcast, and it's uh, that's named after me, Jim Eskimen. I'm the guy who who puts up this podcast every now and then. And uh, big shout out to anybody who listens to this podcast. You've had to endure a lot of large gaps, but then maybe that's fine. You don't need to hear from me every week. Do you, do you talk to your grandmother every week? I don't. Unfortunately, my grandmothers aren't around. I can still talk to them, but I just don't get a birthday card with five dollars in it anymore. Anyway, big shout out to Sufian, my friend in India. I don't know where in India. Uh, if any of you out there in India, do you know my friend Sufian? It's like people say, oh, you live in California. Do you know, do you know Bob? So Sufian, I, I feel like I'm talking to you very directly. I know you listen to this avidly. And, uh, you know, there's about four billion people in India. You could get some more of your friends to listen and, and like the channel and like the, uh, like the podcast. That would be great. Uh, you probably see a lot more people in a day than I do. I, I sometimes go days and days without seeing many people because I'm out here in the in the suburbs where I never was comfortable as a kid, to be honest. In this very house where I I live, uh, I I have the, I don't know if I mentioned that. Maybe it's a bad thing to mention, but I uh, I grew up in the house that I live in currently. I raised my daughter here and I raised myself here with the help of my parents, of course, when I was a little guy. And uh, so I've been in this house a long, long time. And uh, whenever I think about how sort of depressing that is, actually, it's not depressing at all because it's a very nice house. And we're lucky to have it. It's a swell place to live. It's been improved over the years. We're improving it more and more. But I always think about Louis Armstrong. And Louis Armstrong also lived in, I think it was Brooklyn, in a, an apartment building that he lived in for most of his life. That I may be disremembering that, but I, I, it, it makes me very comfortable to think that uh, that maybe I'm doing something like the great Louis Armstrong. This is precious few things that I can do, except play air trumpet. <laughs> which he didn't have to do because he had a real one. Anyway, uh, so Sufian, you're, you're listening. That's good. I hope this is <laughs> inspirational to you in some way. I've been sort of uh, having one of those... Uh, one of those weird periods that follows a lot of activity. I did a lot of work. I did a lot of uh, voiceover stuff, and I had a lot of activity. I traveled, and uh, things were going good. I have a lot of uh, commercials on the air, which is very unusual for me. Uh, it used to be the usual thing, and then as I've gotten older, it's like, well, they only they only really want older guys like myself to uh, to help sell different uh, medications that i just can't get behind so I, a lot of uh, a lot of commercials i just i just don't go on and other ones you know the, the, if you watch tv it's really a young person's game and i certainly played that game very well and profitably when i was a young man so these days to get some national commercials is very unusual but i have a few running now so that that makes me kind of heave a sigh of relief but at the same time the faucet kind of st- kind of stopped again as it does and i have to look back at what was occurring you know, six seven weeks ago two months ago when i wasn't promoting as much as i usually do and uh, i got busy with work and so i didn't actually uh, let people know you know that i was alive and uh here i am in the in the doldrums the winds will blow again and i'll get very busy shortly but um it's funny, I'm perhaps in your business too. I don't know if you're a freelancer and what line of work you're in, but especially these days, which is one of those expressions that 
we can say at any time, any century. Especially in these times, one can uh, one can see how getting busy and and getting one's products known, one's abilities known, is is really important. You have to be crowing about it all the time, uh, crowing about something, attracting interest in some way. Uh, and that's what I've done a lot with my impressions, with my improv, with the different skills that I've learned. And I've, you know, I've learned because of people's reactions. Oh, they think that's funny. Oh, they think that's interesting. Oh, they'll shut up for two seconds and listen to what I have to say. Uh, that's all trial and error. And we all do that in different ways. You know, I don't have to tell you this. And perhaps in your way, uh, you discover, too, that you get so busy with things that you forget to attract a new clientele or you forget to just make a Make a joyful noise or something, as they used to say, and uh, let people know that you're alive. It makes all the difference. Although sometimes we hold ourselves back, you know, and uh, that's what motivational speakers always talk about, you know. Just let yourself go and push yourself and think outside the box and uh, all these expressions, <laughs> which is just a motivational speaker's way, I realize, of, of attracting interest and feeling better about themselves. And they should because they do us a lot of good. It was our anniversary this week, my wife and I, our wedding anniversary. Twenty-nine years ago, we were married in New York City. It was uh, uh, May 10th, uh, 1987, and it was a very humid but uh, lovely day in New York City. I remember well, there were puffy clouds, you know, that kind of sticky pre-summer humidity in New York, and uh, it was just uh, a heck of a day. You know, it was very—we had no money. And yet we cobbled together favors and, uh, you know, we had a little bit of money, but not too much. And, uh, and, you know, it was really our game, our creation. So we didn't, uh, you know, go around hounding people for money or or contributions. We got a few. We got them, the people at our theater that we worked at in New York. And if you were around us at that time, you were probably invited to our improv theater, the big party that we had afterward. But the, uh, the wedding ceremony itself was held on a rooftop on West Broadway and Spring Street. Gosh, it was magical. It was magical. It was, it was just heavenly. Tamara looked uh, extraordinary. She wore her, her mother's wedding dress. I don't know whose tuxedo I was wearing. It was a rental. Uh, didn't have a name sewn into it. And I just remember that there was a guy on the street uh, playing the saxophone. And you know that haunting sound of a guy just kind of playing different tunes or, or just kind of noodling around on a saxophone? as heard through the the beautiful corridor of brick and glass and and traffic, you know, and all these sounds all mixed together. There's a couple of times in my life when a saxophone, a plaintive wail of a saxophone uh, improvising has sort of colored things magically, and this was such a time. And, of course, uh, all the wonderful people that were there, my father and my mom and uh, all uh, Tamara's folks and just tons of people, some of them gone now, 29 years ago, a long time ago, but uh, it's lasted very well. What's our secret? Um, I don't know. We're still trying to figure it out. You know, we, we, we do love and respect each other a lot. Uh, Tamara's magnificent. She got, I got the better end of the deal. She sort of got the short end of the stick. But I think we, we try, we know that we have to kind of create this relationship. We have to create our life together. And, of course, once you have a child, that that becomes sort of easier in a way because you have automatically got to do things right when you wake up in the morning or in the middle of the night when the child comes into your bedroom and, in a very spooky way, gently lays a hand on your sleeping arm and says, Daddy, I'm scared. And then you wake up and say, I am too, (laughs) because you've just put my heart in my mouth. Uh... 
But that sort of automatic thing that that happens once a family begins and once uh, you know two people create another human being to take care of, you know that sort of takes the place of a lot of the active creation of relationship. Of course, if you don't create it more than that, though, if you don't say, well, what can my wife and I do together? Or what can I do to enhance her life? Or what can I do to just to let her know how cool I think she is? If you don't make that a little bit of a project in your week, along with all the other things, along with the how am I going to make a buck? Uh, how am I going to avoid being stepped on by somebody? Or how am I you know, going to keep from having my ar- limbs broken in an automobile accident? If you don't put that there as a project every week, then, of course, it, it, it doesn't happen. And um, you could turn around after a number of years or even just months and realize that you've just let the whole relationship dwindle and you're in the doghouse for good and, uh, you know, something horrible has happened. I think that's what uh, people suffer through a lot. They, they don't realize that it's, uh, it's like going to the gym or all these other things that we don't want to confront. It's something that requires constant alertness. And a constant desire to to create it, really. And uh, the best couples I know are creative that way, and they work on it all the time. And uh, they don't work on it like you're working on, you know, filing your teeth down. You work on it like it's a creation that you want to take some joy in. So 29 years ago, uh, so we're heading into our 30th year. We're going to take a few days off. We uh, we had dinner together the other night. And uh, what do we do together now? We 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 do shows together. A little bit. We uh, just did a conference on the uh, cruise ship uh, that our church owns, and uh, we spoke at uh, seminars. And, uh, you know, we laugh together. We travel together. You know, I support her school, the Acting Center, uh, about which I think I've spoken quite a bit, and I'll speak again, the Acting Center, which my wife, Tamara, founded with several other people, friends of ours. And, uh, well, it's a one-of-a-kind acting school. I have to say, it's a really terrific, revolutionary place. It's a quiet revolution going on there. It's the only acting center that I know of in America, certainly, where uh, the teacher is not a guru who tells people how to act and what's good about what they do, but rather they let the students follow a check sheet, they do drills, and they gradually learn for themselves what works and what doesn't, what helps them express what they want to express, and gives them practice in really in pretending uh, that's the way I think of it, uh, just my interpretation, pretending different things and conveying different things, which is what the art is, the art of acting. You're pretending. You're taking on another viewpoint. You're you're saying, I am this person in this situation, despite the fact that I'm not, you know, all evidence to the contrary. That's what acting is. So at the Acting Center, which my wife, as I said, was the founder, it's a wonderful place. And I go there and I help her and I, I contribute to that. Obviously, I, I pimp the school out as often as I can on my podcast and uh, do anything to, to help her with that because that's her special contribution, one of her special contributions to the world. She helps me with my special contributions to the world. And hello again, everyone. Welcome to Ion Technology. And with us in the studio to talk about new things in technology is Professor Wallace Strumley, and he has delved into the history of shredding documents. And it's fascinating because it goes back a lot further than a lot of, a lot of people probably think. Uh, Professor, thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. Uh, now, in your book, which was fascinating, and I won't shred it, by the way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's fine. You might have noticed it has perforated pages, so it's, it is actually easy to pull apart if, if you wish to. It's 
you know, these days uh, with paper clogging up so many of our landfills, it might be a good idea once you've digested the book to, to tear out all the pages. Well, that's very green of you, uh, very environmentally friendly, uh, Professor. But let's delve into it because I know people are going to be fascinated to learn that uh, we thought that paper shredders were turn of the century or, or turn, turn of the 20th century. But you have documented proof that this goes back to the ancient Egyptians. The Egyptians, yeah. The uh, papyrus of papers that they created. And uh, I was fascinated because I've always been absolutely enchanted by the shredding process. Uh, my father uh, worked in a hardware store, and uh, so we had all the latest gadgets. And, uh, you know, around about the 70s, there were shredders were really starting to appear in offices. I just uh-huh. was tickled by the idea that you could take a document and you could separate it into, you know, 50 or 60 vertical strips uh, in, 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 you know, the basically the blink of an eye, which back then was, you took about 15 seconds. Uh, you know, I know that, the, you know, in the uh, World War II, Many of the documents that were shredded were, you know, classified spy papers and things like that. You know, back then, they were just hiring a lady in the stenography pool to take a, their manicure scissors and do it by hand. It's a very arduous thing, uh, but th- this is what they did, yeah. you know, because it was that important to keep those documents secure. I went back even in my researches in the 1700s. There was a count that uh, did a lot of, he uh, uh, would do business and he would have a lot of documentation that was on a kind of a Chinese paper scrolls, and uh, he didn't have a shredder. Of course, but in order to destroy those documents, rather than just uh, put them in the fire, which you see would be easy enough, instead he had a small ferret that he had trained that would chew these papers and uh, into little bites, and this ferret would uh, reduce this document into just a, a pile of small chewed bits. That is fascinating, and that whole chapter that you have is great, that the, that the royalty and the, the people that maybe ran financial institutions mm-hmm. back then would have their own ferret. They'd carry their own ferret around That's to right. shred when they weren't in their castle. Yeah, there was, in fact, there was an expression back then. It said, hold on, let me make sure I brought my ferret with me, and uh, in French, of course, and, and that would mean, oh, hold on, let me make sure there's some way for me to take care that this documentation doesn't get in the wrong hands. Now, uh, you talked about the uh, Inca, the Inca mm-hmm. uh, civilization. They would uh, have to cut up leather and clay. Uh, that was must have been very arduous. Yeah, it was. Uh, we, you know, we don't know exactly what they did, but we have some... Uh, Obviously, scraps of wall uh, friezes and paintings and bar reliefs that seem to indicate that they, as well, were very concerned about the security of the documents. And so, and their documents were, as you say, they were printed, some of them uh, stamped, uh, embossed into leather. Others were cuneiform, pressed into clay. And you know, they would have to, sometimes it would take a slave and they would say, here, you take all these piles of, of documents, which would be basically, uh, you know, what we would look at as being a stack of adobe bricks. And you say, here, now break that in into small bits and you know, you know these were people that were not known for their human rights this is what to erase something uh, sometimes it takes a little extra effort and back then in the Incan times uh, that's, that's what it took well that is fabulous now as we are talking about ion technology uh, what is in the future of shredding mm-hmm. shredding might be on the way out uh, tell us about that uh, well but you know the delete button is really the, the shredder uh-huh, of today uh-huh. in, in a lot of ways but still there's a lot of documentation that has to physically exist you know you have to always have two factors can you make the particles smaller can you reduce it to those particles quicker uh, you know in a, every eight or ten years it gets a little bit faster and a little bit smaller I think total vaporization is just a few steps away 
as far as the shredding revolution is concerned, where, you know, literally a sheaf of documents like such as you would fill out for a mortgage, maybe 150, 120 pages, uh, can be completely puffed away like a, something out of a scene from Harry Potter. You know, and uh-huh. of course, that, that, that is pretty secure. If you can vaporize a document, uh, there's no way that a person can, you know, take all those particles out of the air and reassemble that vapor right. to, you know, to make a revealing or a compromising document. Well, let's hope that they can't. That's now, good. I know you were experimenting with uh, this vaporization at your uh, uh, your atom collider that yeah. you have mm-hmm. uh, there yeah. in uh, Wichita. It's, it's a small atom collider, and, uh, yeah, unfortunately, we, yeah, we, we created quite a bit of damage. Uh, I heard about the accident. Part of the freeway fell in. Uh, we lost an exit and an overpass. And yeah, it, it was some malfeasance there, I think, by the construction company because it should not have come apart so quickly. Well, thank you so much, Professor, for coming in. You know, it's an aspect of this world that we live in. We tend to forget. Professor, thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure. Let me give you this card of mine. Here you are. Oh. You to keep right. that. Okay. And you, as you can see, it's perforated in several places. Oh, you know what? I'm going to memorize this and, and, and shred it. I tell you one thing. I I came from a, a different sort of home than my my wife did. I my parents divorced when I was eight, and it was it was kind of nasty. You know, it was not uh, comfortable. I mean, it wasn't as awful as some that I've heard about. Some breakups, and indeed breakups in America, divorced kids. I think they're probably very very common. Uh, it seems more rare that uh, kids grow up in a family that stays together these days. At least if we're to trust. The Disney Channel, uh, but for me, my wife, on the other hand, her parents are still married, still happily married. It's over fifty years they're together, so I don't know. Does that affect uh, our relationship? Undoubtedly, it certainly made me want to preserve and maintain things, and it hasn't made Tamara be any kind of lackluster or or negligent because she, you know, it all just happens. That's that's not the way she feels. Anyway, did you want to hear about this, Sufian? I imagine you have a, I don't know, I, this may be ethnically incorrect, but I, I imagine you have a big family. I, I just, because I know there's a lot of people in India. So hopefully, you know, your family is, is right in line with that, you know, it's keeping in step. The presidential election is, uh, again, still just uh, hammering away this this bizarre ordeal or, or set of rituals or, I don't know, comedy of errors it's it's just continues to yammer on and on i've the only way i've really contributed to it uh as a as a creator uh, you know impressionist i did a couple of um well, i guess i've done three donald trump um recordings just because frankly i enjoy it, who wouldn't enjoy speaking like donald trump you you know you get to just say whatever's on your mind it doesn't matter and uh, you know, if someone has a problem with it, well, that's that's their that's their problem. Really, frankly, I'm not going to slow down or say something that uh, that won't offend people. It's just a fun way to, to talk. And by the way, I invite you to to go to my YouTube channel if you want to hear uh, my most recent uh, video, which I think is pretty funny. It's it's Donald Trump's call to uh, phone call. Uh, it's a leaked conversation between Donald Trump. And Jon Snow of Game of Thrones. So if that interests you, listen to that. It may be disastrous if he's a president. It may be great if he's a president. I don't know. I, I'm a little scared about it. But then my philosophy is, um, you know, I, I have noticed, uh, before I tell you my philosophy, I'll just say that I have noticed that um, often in these presidential election years, the choices that you're given are each in its own way uh, 
vastly d- discouraging and um, uh, you know depressing yeah, um, for one reason or another. So that you know, it's, it's as if you came to the dinner table and someone said, "So, would you like month-old pasta or month-old fish?" You know, it's a tough choice. It's a, it's, a, it's a Sophie's choice. Not even a Sophie's choice because, you know, in Sophie's case, those were nice kids probably. But my philosophy about it is that the the great correction of humanity, the great hopefulness, the great uh, answers that we seek, the relief that we seek as a, spe- as a species or as really as spiritual beings, as individuals, let's say, not to get religious about it, the great answers, the great solutions aren't going to come from the field of politics. Politics is just there and the government is just there to keep the playing field there so that we can really sort out the larger problems of how to be happy. Government can't make us happy. Uh, you know, the ways, the answers that they come up with to make people happy are, are, are just miserable. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of not their job. Their job is to kind of, I think, to stand back to make a safe place, to pay the bills, you know, to keep to keep the lights on, and uh, and the more equitably that that's accomplished, and it seems that the democracy, so-called, in this republic, you know, it's a democracy and a republic. It's very complicated. Uh, this this sort of system that we have set up is at least better than most systems in the world. Does that make it great? Obviously not, because we not only have a lot of poor people, a lot of hungry people, a lot of dissatisfied people, but we also commit a lot of crimes as a nation, uh, crimes that we're all, you know, feel pretty bad about if we have any kind of conscience at all. But so does every country in the world, you know. So does that make us better? Does that make us the same? I don't know. But uh, I, I definitely support a government that is run uh, and representative of all the people, not just a vested few. And so that's one thing I have to say about Donald Trump. Say what you will about Donald Trump, and I find some of his words just appalling. But he is paying his own way, and that's there's something to that. The artist has a role in all this, and uh, I find that uh, you know sometimes it gets a little bit confusing in these times of great contention or potential for contention when you know the argument just seems so close at hand <laughs> all the time. If you look on Facebook, people are just they have a hair trigger. They're just going to unfriend you in a second if you you know raise your head. But the artist, what is our role? Uh, I think, as always, the artist is, to, is not just there to distract or to make fun, uh, although it's very tempting sometimes you know, to just to make fun. You know, I, I turned down an audiobook job recently because it was just too, I don't know, it was just like, well, what's the point of this? It's just too, it's humorous, but humor at the expense of what? Too destructive for me, anyway. So I bowed out of it. What is the artist's job, really? Does he have a job? Is he just there to express himself? That's what we're told sometimes, just express yourself. I don't know. I'd like to know what you think about it. What do you think the artist's job is? Aren't we supposed to help uplift the world? I think we are. What is the responsibility of an artist? I think the responsibility of the artist is definitely to uplift. And the only times I've felt like I was really really doing my job as an artist if I was, if I was in service of some kind of a, of a encouragement towards the greater aspects of, of being a person, you know, the more intelligent, more sensitive. You know, I don't want to do something that at the end of the day leaves my audience or leaves my listener or my viewer less sensitive, less analytical than he was before. 
that doesn't seem profitable to me. That's why I, you know, I wouldn't work for a beer distributor. You know, I, I, I wouldn't work for something like the pharmaceutical companies that you know have these terrible drugs that, that eventually you know may make you feel fine for a while, but then six or seven months down the road you, you feel like like crap. So uh, the artists, I think, uh, the, the ones that we revere, the great ones, um, the famous ones, of course. And the ones that you just spot around, you know, people that even make an art out of their life that are just uplifting people, you know, like that aunt you had. Wasn't she amazing? The things she would wear. Where did she get those glasses and those thigh-high vinyl boots? You know, these are people that try to create an effect on us that is uh, maybe not even, you, would, you wouldn't even say, well, that's positive. You would just say, that's interesting. And it makes me feel more alive. It makes me feel more like thinking, like talking, like communicative. It seems to give me more space around me so that the stuff that likes to press down on me isn't. <laughs> so that's what an artist does. And that I find inspiring. When that happens to me, like when I watch, uh, I don't know, Dame Edna, for example, fantastic artist, brilliant, brilliant performance, even though she's very rude, but she does it in the service of something. And really anybody she's rude to should just be as flattered beyond belief. Uh, because the, the end result is just so, so satisfying and intoxicating. Because it can, it can get a little bit um, uh, discouraging when you, it, particularly in an election year, again, I'm sorry to harp on it, but uh, often impressionists, we get called upon to do, you know, somebody like the Kimmel Show will call or Conan or, or the Tonight Show will call and they'll need somebody to do a gag and that basically takes the piss out of uh, one of these famous people. And you have to adjudicate at that point, well, is this something that is legitimately funny and, and relatively harmless, or is it uh, too trenchant? Is it too, uh, you know, kind of an asserted sort of weapon uh, that uh, some great media power is wielding against someone who is actually, you know, a pretty decent person? So anyway, you have to kind of juggle those things. It's, you don't want to wind up like Beethoven, uh, when he wrote Eroica and made a big, you know, pronounced dedication to Bonaparte. And later on, he finds out that Napoleon wants to be emperor. And then he gets all pissed off and he tears uh, the, the uh, sheet music. You don't want to be like, like Beethoven. We, no one wants to be like that. We'd rather be like Louis Armstrong, who lived in his own house for years and years in Brooklyn. Yeah. Be cool. Live in the house you grew up in. At least then you'll know where all the faulty wiring is. And maybe where some of the old chewing gum is hidden. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Tate Rupert for the improv. Thanks to Jeff Levin for the theme music. And I will talk to you again soon. Have a really great week. And uh, inspire somebody, will you, this week? Thanks for listening, Sufjan.